State of Digital Publishing is a startup market research publisher producing a publication and community for digital media publishing professionals, content, and media owners in new media and publishing technology. In this episode, we speak with Barry Adams, a leading news SEO consultant, editor of SEO Google News Newsletter, and co-founder of the news and editorial SEO summit, Ness, about the state of technical SEO and what to expect from the second edition of the Ness conference. Let's begin. Hi, Barry. How are you? Good to see you again. Hi, Barry. I'm great. Good to see you again. How are you doing? Not too bad. Time flies. It just feels like last year where, you know, me, John, and yourself had had the chat in the first ever conference that you guys put together. So it's it's good to see you again, Barry. How's things on your end? Yeah, I'm keeping very, very busy. You know, we're going full steam ahead with organizing the conference. And of course, I've got my own consulting work at the same time. So it's an interesting uh, juggling act, but uh, we're managing, we're surviving, and we're making really good progress. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know how it's been the past season, it's been a bit haphazard with a lot of the updates are going around. And without going too into too much speculation, Barry, what, what sort of the glaring things that you've been seeing or the things that you've been speaking to both you know, people in our industry and with your clients? Yeah, if you're talking about the, the, the helpful content update, we, we haven't really seen anything yet. I mean, Google made a big boo-ha about it and announced it and the whole industry was sort of bracing for impact. And then they they said it started rolling out on the 25th of August and yeah. I haven't seen anything. You know, I can't say any of my clients have been affected in any way. Uh, traffic seems to be just carrying on as usual. In fact, I don't know of many websites at all that I've seen any impact from it. I, I follow Lily Ray on Twitter. She was a speaker at the conference last year. She's on, on a panel this year again. Yeah. Um, and she keeps an eye on a lot of different websites, a lot of different industries. And she has the odd example of a website that is affected by it. But she too is sort of baffled at the fairly minimal impact that the, the update seems to have for something that Google pre-announced and made quite a big fanfare about. It seems to be quite a quiet update. In fact, if Google hadn't said anything, we probably wouldn't have noticed that there is an update. So... Yeah, we don't really know what the helpful content update is really looking for, how it's rolling out. Sites we expected to be impacted by it don't seem to be affected by it at all. So, yeah, it's wait and see mode, basically. Yeah, definitely. And um, Glenn Gabe and Lily Ray always have those chats between, in between each other on Twitter about that. Um, I think there's also in the news SEO community, or maybe it was the journalism SEO Slack channel, that a lot of people were also talking about discovered drops and stuff like that. But anyways... um. I think I wanted to talk to you more about, particularly because you're the, the stoic of the app and how that's a lot of that's also been now like loosened up, particularly with the schema markup and everything else. Like, have you seen much of anything around that when in the past year since we last spoke? Any updates around that and, and particularly around top stories that you've seen change or you're advising anything else differently? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to accelerated mobile pages, it's, it's dying a slow, a protracted death, really. I get the impression Google has sort of let go of that particular standard. I mean, they dropped the requirement uh, for, for mobile top stories, I think it was last year even. And a lot of publishing clients have since just said, right, okay, we're not going to maintain the AMP standard anymore and just going to focus on making our own regular article templates better. And that does seem to be the right approach. I mean, it was only a few weeks ago when a fairly big publisher, the name just escaped me, but they basically turned off AMP and didn't see any meaningful impact from that at all. And we see more and more of those examples pop up all the time. Publishers 
feel confident that their regular articles perform fast enough and well enough, and they turn off their amperism, and all their visibility in top stories is basically replaced with their regular articles rather than the amp version of the article, and they don't see any negative impact from that at all. So, yeah, it makes me very happy because, as you know, I'm not a fan of AMP. I think top stories in general is, is an interesting space because in the last year, since the last conference, we've seen the, the, the size of it, especially on desktop, expand quite a lot and multiple blocks of content appearing in top stories now in the, for, for high volume news topics uh, where you have the main top stories block with you know the focus articles for the news story, but then on, on also in the news block right below there uh, in, in many uh, Google versions with background information and, 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 and uh, background analysis articles, which shows me that Google is aware that there's more than just the news content there uh, that's worthwhile showing and that it is worth giving uh, their users access to more background information about that same topic. And the news blog can be quite big on a lot of search results, which is great because it also gives more space to more different publishers. Google is getting quite good at putting a lot of different publishers in top stories boxes. We, we used to see where a publisher could dominate top stories and have three or four stories on one topic in the single top stories box. I don't see that happen very often anymore nowadays. It's, it tends to be one publisher gets one story in, in the top stories box, and then the other boxes, the other places are taken up by different publishers. So there seems to be a, a real good effort from Google to be more diverse in the news stories that they show, uh, which is an exciting space. I mean, it gives more opportunities to other publishers and, and it gives, gives more traffic basically to more different publishers. And, and I think makes it probably a bit of a fairer playing field. So yeah, uh, I like that AMP is sort of fading into the background. And I like that Google is, is definitely giving news a lot of prominence in its search results. I think I think I've seen for mine as well, particularly with the only situation where I've seen where there's been multiple articles for a publisher is when there's been a lot of series sequence stories, like follow-up stories. So particularly if, for example, like the um, the mail, when they've, you know, go behind the celebrity content, like they go very hard like that's when I see a lot of times that they come up quite a bit but um but yeah you're right I, I see the same quite a number of the same things as well from from in, that you're seeing as well particularly I think the the thing that you mentioned about the celebrity content the entity-based topics and how they're showing supporting news content that's been fairly recently we're recording on the 7th of September so that I've, I've seen I started seeing that more as of two weeks ago as well so Interesting times for sure. What's been your, does this in technical mean for you or how have you seen web stories and sort of video come into the foray in your remit? Or do you feel like that's more of an editorial thing? That... Well, uh, I, I had a lot of hope for web stories to be entirely honest. It's probably the only context where I'm a supporter of the AMP standard because web stories need uh, uh, to be built on an AMP template. And I, I like the format of it. Mm. Uh, just, I was always a little bit ambivalent because web stories is basically trying to do on Google search what you see on Instagram with the stories that people do. Uh, and I'm not sure it's the right medium for it. When people are searching for something, they don't necessarily want to engage in that sort of visual content that the web story has. They want to read an article. Yeah. So yeah, I, I like the format, but it hasn't really taken off, has it? It's sort of, it's fairly restricted in how often it's showing them. And most of the time, most news carousels have no web stories at all. And I think that's also because the publishers haven't really embraced it 
in, in a large scale. It's still a fairly niche topic. In terms of other technical SEO things, the videos, like you mentioned, we we recently got a much better report in Search Console on video indexing. Uh, and it is, for publishers, a very important aspect of reporting. I do tend to see that video articles perform better in Google News and Top Stories as well as in Google Discover. Um, and that play icon that you see in the Top Stories carousel for an article that has an embedded video where Google recognizes that it has a video, I think it does lead to slightly higher click-through rates. I think people like it when an article has a visual component to it, but it also depends on the context of the article a bit. But, you know, a short one-minute, one-and-a-half-minute news video on a topic is very digestible, and people do like to engage with that sort of content. Uh, so I see publishers that have a TV channel as well as a news website have a bit of an advantage there because they don't need to invest too much in video production because that's their main business, basically, and they can just port that over to their website. Whereas publishers who are primarily, they generally come from a print background and, and just have a news website that basically uh, replaces a, a newspaper, they have a harder time getting and sourcing that video content and making that a cornerstone of, of how they produce the news. They're still very much focused on a, on a text-based approach to news. And I think there's a happy medium there where publishers do need visual content on their websites to make it more engaging, to, to uh, supply what their readers want. And it's worthwhile investing in that medium as, as, a, as a newest organization, providing you know it's something you feel comfortable with as your journalistic output. It's, it's a very different game producing video-based news versus text-based news. So uh, you know, there's a, it's not something you easily step into. You need to be comfortable with that format and that medium, which is why you know the TV channels uh, have a bit of an advantage there, the CNNs of this world. Uh, versus the, the classic newspaper like the New York Times, which is very much print-based first. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the video indexing report from a technical SEO, SEO perspective makes it easier for us to analyze uh, how Google picks up videos and, and when videos are recognized as part of, of an article and whether or not you get that little play icon in the, in the thumbnail image. I haven't been able to make it real actionable recognition of the back of it yet because Google has launched the report. But at the same time, admitted that the reporting isn't particularly accurate. You know, Google says, oh, there's no prominent video in this article. And then you do an inspect URL on, on some of the examples. And Google says, yeah, there's a video in that. Uh, and we've indexed the video. Right. What do you mean? Uh, so I think the report is uh, is in early days, maybe just out of beta, and probably needs ironed out a bit. And I hope it becomes more accurate as time goes on. But at least it gives us an initial impression on, of the video uh, reporting and video indexing in, in Google, uh, which is, you know, it's a good start. Yeah, definitely. I think, like you said, this it's been a limited view in terms of how we can do that. But um, I think in, when I was even technically troubleshooting a, a news article, which was uh, which I want to share because um, because it shows some of the preference that Google still has over their YouTube videos versus Instagram. Like the the news article had the featured video, which was from YouTube embed, and then it had the same one or similar one that was in Instagram. And then it sort of said in the video report in Search Console that it couldn't determine which one was the canonical, which one was the preference one. As soon as I sort of told one of our clients to remove the Instagram one and then re got it re-indexed, it automatically showed up in top stories, had the video icon and stuff like that. So who knows? Like, I mean, I think it's another tool in the arsenal, which I hope it gets better over time. I think it's a very useful, particularly as publisher or CEOs. So absolutely, we'll absolutely, fully agree.
yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, with all these constant changes and updates that are happening, is the approach still the same in terms of last time, like in terms of um, sort of being more what you see is, is what's determining your priorities with in use SEO? Or is there like tools that, that I must, that publishers need to evolve from? Like, I think I was having a look at your Twitter thread the other day and you had a few series of posts of like, if you had, if you choose X number of tools, which one would they be? Maybe you're sort of doing a tongue in cheek sort of play for some of the vendors and stuff, but what's sort of your approach with your, your philosophy in terms of um, staying ahead? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to technical SEO, Google hasn't fundamentally changed how it calls and indexes content, which is what technical SEO is about, you know, enabling efficient calling and indexing of content. It's a gradual evolution of how Google improves that. So, you know, we haven't drastically changed how we approach technical SEO because it's more or less the same game. Google gets better and is a bit more fault tolerant. So that's probably fewer issues we have to worry about. But some of the core issues will always be the same. You know, we need fast loading websites and clean HTML, highly prominent links, uh, no reliance on clients like JavaScript if possible, and, yeah. and, and more of those sorts of things. So I do like the fact that the, the tool landscape in SEO is rapidly evolving and growing. I think SEO has proven its worth as a channel and as an industry. And yeah. we see a lot more uh, venture capital-backed software as a service firms pop in there to say, right, okay, we, we're going to build a tool that is really useful for the SEO industry because the industry is now big enough and, and, and reputable enough that you know it's worth developing a tool for that. And for example, when, when SEMrush went public as one of the first major SEO tool providers, that was a bit of a, of a hallmark moment as well that proved that, yes, the SEO industry has real potential as a market for, for software vendors to, to focus on. It yeah. sort of kicked off a bit of a of a storm in the SEO tool industry as well of consolidation and acquisition, where you see Content King, for example, being bought up by Conductor and other so, things happening where the software vendors are buying up other smaller software vendors. So there's a bit of a consolidation act going on. At the same time, we get new tools that pop up all the time to provide specific services for the SEO industry. I like testing out new tools. I like testing out uh, new products. But I'm not going to drastically change my way of working. You know, uh, over the years I've been fairly loyal to a fairly small set of tools because they just really align well with the way that I work and the way that I like to audit websites and I like to analyze uh, technical SEO issues. So, you know, that too hasn't really changed. I sometimes stop using a tool when I find a tool that's slightly better at it, but that's quite rare. I'm I'm, I'm a bit of an old dinosaur, maybe. I'm uh, I'm uh, uh, slow to change. But um, at the same time, when something really exciting comes along, I just jump on it and say, well, let's go give this a try and let's see whether, you know, how I can improve my own processes by using that particular tool. But we never need to lose sight of the fact that the tools help and they're very powerful and they can do a lot, but they never replace the human mind when it comes to analyzing websites and, and you know, distilling what the tools find into actionable recommendations. If a tool can call a website and say, oh, we found 100 internal redirects at an issue we need fixing. If it's a 1 million URL website, I don't care about 100 redirects. You know? If it's 100,000 redirects, then I probably care about it. And that, that, that may be an issue worth investigating. So a tool won't tell you that. And the tool just spits out the output. And then you have to put your own experience to work with what the tool shows you to say, right, is this an issue that's actually worth fixing or is it just a total non-issue or is it maybe a nice to have as terms of fixing goes? So so you always have to apply, you know, your own critical thinking to it, a certain approach to prioritization, depending on, on where you feel the impact versus the effort uh, lies. 
and and also be aware of the context in which the website itself operates that you're analyzing you know how things are these how, how easy are these things to fix how easy uh, can the, the technical underpinnings of the website be updated and improved and some of this stuff you know you learn as you go along you learn through experience out of this stuff you can teach yourself by maybe doing a bit of coding or if you come from a coding background that sometimes helps a lot or just talking to developers you know you don't have you don't have to be a coder you can just talk to developers and learn from them and see well you know how easy or difficult would they find it to make these sorts of changes so yeah it's it's gradual evolution more than anything else i think that's that's the core point i'm trying to make you know not to, again i don't want to go down the rabbit hole the whole content up there but obviously there's been a lot of influx of ai tools and that's obviously sort of become the catalyst of this update but um how much do you think a in terms of those type of tools will continue to to flourish or to continue to help us evolve our way of thinking and and b how much of do you think maybe developer background professionals or professionals that have a proficiency in you know because obviously we've seen python and all those type of language sets becoming a lot more of a tool set for an seo where do you feel like that's going to be by the time next year you have the next technical SEO presentation, where do you feel, feel like that's going to be next year? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm a bit of in of, of in two minds when it comes to things like AI-generated content, where the actual content you publish on the on the website as news content is mainly or maybe even entirely generated by an AI. I think there is actually a place for that, providing it is genuine reporting. As in, I'll give you an example articles you write about major fluctuations in currency markets. You can pretty much automate writing those, uh, those articles based on the numbers that you feed into the AI system. Uh, the same with, with sports scores. You know, you can write a, a summary of a basketball game in, in a, like a third league team purely based on the statistics from that max that you feed into the system. And there is a place for that, I think. We, we shouldn't actually be penalizing that because it's a very cost-effective way to generate content that it might be for a small audience, but it's an engaged audience. The audience wants that, and it's helpful for that audience. However, if you scale it up too much, and AIs can never replace genuine reporting of news and genuine investigative journalism, that will never be replaced by machines. I hope, you know, maybe in another 20 or 30 years, we've invented general AI, but for the time being, I don't see that happening. Yeah. I think in terms of the publishing industry, the real power of these um, AI systems lie primarily in identifying entities and topics. You know, we briefly mentioned that before and um, semi-automating the tagging and internal linking that publishers do when they publish articles. I say semi-automating because I always feel there needs to be a human editorial oversight over those things. The machine learning systems are smart, they're good, but they're not perfect. So they can point away to a large degree, but they need a bit of hand-holding along the way and they need a bit of correcting along the way. But uh, you know, I've seen some demos of really interesting systems that automatically generates tags and internal links based on the topics written in a news article. I think that can be really, really powerful because those are additional actions that journalists nowadays tend to have to perform manually, you know, internal linking to tag pages or associating tags with articles. Uh, and if you can facilitate that process for them a bit easier, make it a, a bit more of a smooth process for them by just automatically suggesting tags and suggesting internal links, that they did one click and then approve or do disapprove. I think that's really powerful and, and very, very useful. Uh, but that human oversight, I think, is still needed at this stage. And it's not something that we need to let go too too quickly because it can go horribly wrong. Yeah. You know, you can get the wrong tags and the wrong topic being highlighted. 
sometimes you can have incredibly embarrassing results. So you need that human oversight at this stage. The systems aren't quite smart enough yet. And you know, this sort of technology integrating into the, the production of news is a good thing, I think. It's a, a helpful thing. If you have a few technically minded people on a newsroom, provided that they still are essentially journalists, because journalism itself cannot be replaced by technology and shouldn't be replaced by technology. The purpose of news is very clear, and that needs to be still the core mission of a publisher, I feel. Maybe I'm a bit ill school about that, but I think no, I, still... I agree with you as well. I agree with you as yeah. well. And I think I think the main thing as well is like from my point of view, AI should, should help bring a level playing field because we've got the big behemoths of the the old school publishers or new scopes in the world that you know you can just throw a lot of money at a problem and sort of resolve it. But those small publishers don't have that. So long as I think it's regulated, it, it should be used as a way to level the playing field. And if that's what the audience wants, like those recaps. Let them do that so that then someone else can prioritize and do a better better job in other areas, more in original in-depth reporting, you know, as 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 Google and has been particularly flagging in their e-guidelines this past year. I think even in the rubric in that in the rubric that they have in the updated guidelines, they've actually classified that kind of content as being okay. They've been able to go into that level of depth and understanding from what I interpreted from the updated guidelines. So yeah, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I mean, I'm not entirely sure Google can even fully detect when an article is written by a machine system because we tend not to be able to detect it. And so how would Google, right? And and it's still, if the article is genuinely useful and valuable for a reader, then it doesn't matter who wrote it, does it? It doesn't matter that it's a machine system that, that generated that content. Yeah, so. no, fair enough. Do you see much more of the, an SEO with a dev, dev stack or with the clients that you're working with, more of a technical mind, like, I've seen some places, for example, they, they might have like a technical SEO specialist just focusing on, like, you know how in, in an agency model, you might have a technical content specialist. I think that's becoming more apparent in publishing organizations now. Are you seeing that same thing as well? Or how do you feel like the role might evolve in the next couple of years for publisher SEOs? Yeah, I mean, historically, most SEOs working in news organizations tend to be journalists first, SEOs second. I'm starting to see a bit of a shift there where the SEOs first and then learn the trade of, of the news industry. And technical SEOs, as far as dedicated roles in news organizations go, I, I do see them pop up at specifically larger news organizations. They tend to have multiple news websites. Yep. Which I think where, when it actually makes sense to have an in-house technical SEO. If you just have one publishing website, it probably doesn't make sense to have a pure technical SEO on board because there's not enough to do for that person. <laughs> Generally, if you have multiple websites, different game, and then, then that role starts to make sense. So it is definitely something that publishers are getting more comfortable with uh, becoming part of their skill sets. Um, I also see some publishers have really good in-house developers who are upskilling themselves on SEO, so almost changing themselves from developers into tech SEOs or, or adding tech SEO to their skill set as a developer. Yeah. Uh, so they, again, is building those in-house capabilities and about making sure that they develop the tech stack of, of the publishing site in a direction that makes sense for Google as well as for you know the business goals that they're trying to achieve. So it's definitely something that you know again as the SEO industry in general has matured, so have these in-house roles matured and become more commonplace as people also understand that SEO isn't a dirty word and is actually quite a crucial skill set to have within an organization if you want to grow your audience and you want to develop and evolve as a news publisher or of any website really. So uh, yeah, it's it's really nice to see that with, with, as an industry are being taken seriously and that our craft is uh, is becoming a more prominent part of 
you know, uh, how people uh, develop and improve their website. Yeah, I love, I love that SEO has come to age in, in a nutshell. And um, even some of those SEOs, like you said, whether they, they then learn about journalism or go into more of a broader digital role that they, they are able to do that because they have that foundation in place. So I, I look forward to seeing more of that happening in the future as well, for sure. Barry, let's go into speaking more about the event. I think as we are being media partners last year, absolutely enjoyed helping and trying to see how we can spread the word. And the speaker lineup that they had last year was awesome as well. This is not, no exception. Probably going to be, as you mentioned, when before we started recording, probably going to be the heart at the top next year. So how were you able to bring together all these awesome speakers? What was your intentions this year? I know you pretty much, I think in the, in the news SEO Slack group that you and John Ron, you said that if you guys say that we should run an next year or and in the feedback form that you sent in last year event, that we'll run it. And yeah, so I guess what's when you had that point of getting that validation from the community to then now running it, sort of what was the thought process and how did you put sort of the, the agenda together this year? Yeah, when we launched the event last year, the first event, we had, John and I had sort of a wish list of speakers. And, and almost all of them said yes straight away. So that sort of took care of itself. And we were quite surprised, very happily surprised that they just said yes. Like, right, okay, great, brilliant. So for this year, John and I had a bit of a think as well first about, okay, what kind of topics do we actually want to talk about? And who do we feel would be the best speakers to address those topics? And again, we ended up with a fairly short list. You know, and we decided to do those topics partially based on the feedback that we got from attendees of, of last year's event. And partially because of the direction that we see the news industry in general heading and where we feel like it's probably worth having these sorts of discussions. Just how we, for example, we come up with an, uh, a panel session talking about career growth and career trajectories for SEOs and audience growth professionals. And I think that's definitely something worth discussing. So, you know, again, we ended up with a wish list of speakers based on, on those topics. And again, pretty much everybody we wanted to speak said yes straight away because most of them actually attended last year as well. Uh, which makes it easier to tell, I suppose, as a speaking slot. Uh, and then for, for one or two topics, we had to dig a bit deeper and try to find relevant speakers for that. And they, usually the, the first people we approached were like very keen and very happy. So it sort of very naturally came together quite quickly. And uh, we ended up again with a really good roster of speakers. We probably topped last year, which I thought was hard enough. But last year we had fantastic speakers. Uh, really experienced people from, from fantastic publications. And this year, again, we thought, right, okay, we have the wish list. And then, like I said, nearly everybody said yes. So we end up with uh, more speakers, more slots as well. We were expanding the event a bit. We are basically adding on one extra session a day for the two days. So we have extra sessions. And we get two panel sessions rather than one now. So again, we ended up very naturally with a, a really strong roster of speakers. And like you alluded to, I'm quite worried about next year. Like, how, how do we make sure we keep topping it? Because we're sort of reaching a plateau of, of both the, the publications represented and the experience of the, the, the people in there. So, uh, but at the same time, news industry is huge. And John and I probably don't know everybody. <laughs> There's a lot of people out there who do this and who do this really, really well, who John and I probably have never talked to. So. We just probably need to, to tap into our network and, and start connecting to more people and preparing for next year to see if we can get more speakers from more diverse publications uh, on board. And one of the goals I have personally is to try and get more 
non-English language speakers from non-English language countries 100%. Uh, uh, speaking at NAS and, and getting a more diverse uh, perspective from there, from publishers from South America, from India, from Africa, to just, uh, you know, make it a bit more diverse and not just be purely English language focused. Uh, we tried to do that a bit this year. don't think we really succeeded, but I think for next year, it's definitely a focus of mine to, to see if we can broaden the scope to more international non-English publications because I think that's something definitely we need to, to work on and, and cast a broader net as the nest. But you know we this is only going to be the second time we've done it and next year will be the third time that we're doing it. So we're still new at this. Neither John nor I had ever organized an event before we launched NES. So uh, we're still learning as we go along and we'll probably make a few mistakes along the way, you know, and it's something that uh, you might have to have a bit of patience with us for. But we're trying to make sure that every event is definitely worthwhile and the sort of event that John and I would like to attend ourselves because that's what started the news and editorial SEO summit that John and I got together and said right there isn't an event that we want to attend that is valuable for us so why don't we create it and I think that was what made the first event so successful and if we adhere to that spirit to create an event that we feel as news SEO professionals is valuable and hopefully other people will also see that as valuable and worthwhile. Yeah, I guess um, last his feedback spoke itself, and I'm just to, again for people who are listening this via the podcast, they have in their agenda more unique topics like content and affiliate SEO for publishers, talking about live events, talking about workflows, talking about automation. On top of the state of the union that yourself and John are, are running, I think yeah, like you said, it's it's one that's very diverse, more specialized as well. So it's definitely pretty awesome on the agenda that you're covering. Um, is there any hints you can give us about your presentation? I don't want to give away the secret sauce too much, but yeah, I will be talking about the the, the, the new reporting that we're getting in Google Search Console and and how you can make that actionable and what what you can actually take from that and turn it into actionable recommendations and fixes. For your own website, as well as how Google News has slightly evolved over the last 12 months or so when it comes to calling and indexing of content. I'm probably going to mention the demise of AMP because I, I can't help but be a bit smug about that and, and show some case studies of websites that have deleted their AMP pages and basically just kept chugging along as, as before. And yeah, I'm, I'm always trying to find some interesting case studies and examples from, from clients of really interesting technical challenges that they have or technical SEO issues. So I'll try to sprinkle a few of those in there as well, real-world case studies of things that have maybe gone wrong or where we expected one thing to happen and something else happened. Uh, and, you know, it can maybe serve as a bit of a, of a teachable moment for the uh, technical SEO for anybody who uh, is involved in, in similar projects. So um, I have a rough outline of the talk in my head, uh, but I haven't yet started creating my, my slide deck for it yet. So that's definitely on my, uh, my to-do list for the next few weeks. Does... Um... Last minute leave to perfection. I've heard sometimes procrastinators are perfectionists, no? or is this more of the hectic schedule, I guess, that you have? Yeah, it's more the hectic schedule, if I'm entirely honest. The part of me wishes I'd already have it done because I, I can't, I get quite anxious about it. Like, oh crap, I still need to create that deck. And I want to do a good job. That's the thing. I, especially, I do it for all conferences. I always want to do a good job and make sure that the organizers of the conference felt it was worth getting buried for this one. But because this is mine and John's conference, I feel very involved in this. I definitely don't want to let anybody down. I definitely want to deliver something really valuable and really worthwhile. 
So I'm putting the pressure all on myself. Yeah, it's it's been a very busy few months. It's going to be a very busy few weeks as well before the event uh, next month. So uh, by trying to find and make the time for it, I suppose, to, to actually craft the talk and put it all together. I'm sure you're going to have a, a short break after that as well. I think last year you mentioned as well, you're going to have a short break after your conference. You, sort of it's you know yes. built up. Yeah. We, uh, my wife and I already booked a, a week-long holiday uh, shortly after the conference to just uh, un unload, unwind a bit and uh, take stock. Very nice, very nice. Is there any other highlights you can share to us about the event agenda, anything else about the speakers in particular? I mean, if you go to the website and look at the speaker roster and, and what they'll be talking about, it sort of speaks about itself. You know, we've got Claudio Cabrera talking about live uh, blogs. We've got Louisa Fram talking about uh, trends, trending articles, Google Trends. We haven't officially announced it yet, but maybe by the time people listen to this, it'll be announced. We have uh, two speakers from the, the UK's uh, Times and Sunday Times newspaper, Leonie Roderick and, and Ben Dilch. We're going to be talking about paywalls from the Times of the Paywalls news website. And I'm really excited about that talk as well. So uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be fantastic. I'm also really looking forward to the careers panel on, on day two, where we have people talking about their own career in SEO. We have someone from agency backgrounds, someone from in-house, someone from uh, all kinds of different backgrounds. They talk about how they got into SEO and how they've grown in, in SEO and news. So yeah, that's, it's basically every talk I'm excited for because I think I'm going to learn something from every single talk there. Yeah, I think like I, like I was saying before, I think this one's a lot more diverse and I appreciate you guys bringing out that lot of different range of topics. Just for those, I guess that also, I know this is going to be housekeeping and, and I'm sure that it's already been said as well in the news, in the emails and stuff as well. I guess a lot of these uh, recordings are going to be available at a, after a certain point, and you guys will let them know once once the event's over, right? Yeah, I think that's something that... what we did last year. Yeah, you know? uh, because you know we we put the, the the conference in time zones where it makes sense for Europeans and Americans to to attend live, but you know the world is much bigger than that. So uh, when you buy a ticket to the event, you also get access to the recordings of all the talks, which will probably launched between one or two weeks after the event because we probably need to tidy up the video here and there a little bit but yeah you get access to all the recordings with your ticket that's just part of it so you know you buy your ticket you can attend live and you get access to all the talks to watch whenever you want after the event uh, and i think that's probably why we're going to stick with the online format because it worked really well for the first year and it was by necessity first year because of the whole COVID situation. Yeah. And, and John and I realized that the reason the event worked as well as it did was probably because it was online and people from all over the world could buy a ticket and, and feel part of it. Whereas if you make it a physical event in a specific city, it's much harder for people to travel and it can be very expensive for people to travel as well. So we thought, let's just keep it online for the time being. And you know, we might find a way to make it a hybrid event that's partially physical and partially or entirely virtual but for the time being i think we'll stick with the online only format because we feel comfortable with that it worked really well and it, like i said it gives people the ability to just watch the recordings later whenever they want and they don't have to get up at 3 a.m their local time to participate in the event well let's, let's say hopefully it becomes as bigger if not bigger than brightness here for example who knows uh, you might I have don't that. think we'll ever be that big. Yeah, yeah I know, I know you'll be that big. People come to Brighton, actually, that's uh, quite special. Yeah, I mean, people from Brighton go all around the world, come to that. But anyways, I'm sorry, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, maybe that that kind of online, offline, maybe might hopefully work once you uncover more of the hidden publishers that are out there around the world. So we'll, we'll see exactly. over time. 
Barry, just in terms of uh, closing our conversation, did you have any final words of any thoughts on technical SEO or anything that you wanted to cover about the event that you wanted to share that maybe I didn't ask for you today? No, I think we've, we've covered a lot in, the, in, the, in this recording. I'm just really excited, both excited for the event. I can't wait for it to actually happen. And as well as my day-to-day work, it's always exciting and fun to work with publishers. And every website has their own unique challenges. There's always room for improvement there as well. You know, it's, it's the fun about working in SEO and audience growth is, is never a dull moment. It's, it's not easy to get into a boring routine. <laughs> it's, it's too exciting. It's too vivid. And, and news in general is just an industry that I'm really passionate about and, and journalism in general. And I'm, you know, I'm not a journalist myself and I feel really privileged to, to be able to contribute however modestly to the, the work that journalists do and making sure that that work gets an audience that, that it deserves. So um, yeah, it's just, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely privileged to do what I do and I'm really excited to be able to to help deliver the news and SEO conference as well. That's why subjectively, I think publisher SEO is always the best SEO. So because you always are ahead. But um, with that, Barry, thank you so much uh, again for joining us on the podcast this year. And um, break a leg. I'm sure you guys will do an awesome job as you've done last year. And um, I look forward to hopefully speaking to you same time this year again for the third conference. And Sounds great to me. Right? I'll hold you to that. Thank you very no much for having me. Likewise. Thank you.